Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the beauty of it. We thank you for the joy of it. We even thank you here for people who need to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the apostles and to the saints. And we thank you for the preservation of this word for us today and this good news of the gospel. Bless us as we consider it today as your people. Apply it to our hearts, our minds, and our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Presbyterians love Acts chapter 15. We love it when we get to this place. There are a lot of places in the book of Acts that are confusing to us. There are a lot of things that we don't understand in the book of Acts. But when Presbyterians get to Acts chapter 15, we kind of sigh a little bit, we breathe deeply, we, we inhale this chapter and we go, okay, this is good. It makes sense to us. We appreciate the necessity of a faith that is articulated for us. And we recognize the need to contend for the faith. In every generation, there will be the necessity of contending for it against those from within and those from outside of the church. And then, of course, as Presbyterians, we value the process that is described for us here. We seek to emulate this process, the way that this decision is made in our polity in the way that we structure our church government, in the way that we do things as a body. That said, that all said, and recognizing it and appreciating it for all of those reasons, and frankly, I'm gonna come back to some of those over the course of this sermon. Acts 15, and this is what we need to understand, is not a case study in conflict resolution. That's not the point of it. That's not the main point. The main point of it is not even to give us a, a way to establish Presbyterian polity, even those things are, though those things are useful as we look at this. Instead, this is an epic-making and marking, and it is an unrepeatable event that will change the landscape of the people of God forever. And it happens right in this passage through right of the process that we see described for us here. Now, the seeds of what take place here have been scattered in everything that has come before us. And, and let, me, let me kind of work it backwards. The saplings we have seen throughout the book of Acts. We have seen Gentiles coming to the faith. We have seen them turning to the good news of the gospel. So we've seen that in the book of Acts and we've expected it to take place in the book of Acts. We saw, if you will, beyond saplings, maybe the first indications of leaves and, and, and things breaking through the soil in the ministry of Jesus and how Gentiles were converted through the ministry of Jesus, how they came to faith as well. And the seeds for this are actually sown way back in the history of the Old Testament scriptures, of the Old Covenant. And in particular, the seeds are sown for us in the prophets, which we'll consider today as we work through this particular passage. So the, the seeds have been there, the saplings have been there, but this place, Acts chapter 15, is the official, the, the recognition, the constitution, the establishment of this new people of God, and it is indeed to be a multinational, multi-ethnic, multi-racial people of God who are united everywhere, wherever they may be, under the kingship of Christ, in the Holy Spirit, by grace, through faith. That's what happens in Acts chapter 15. 
So what I want to look at today, and it's very simple in terms of the way we'll consider this together, is we're going to look at the conflict and then the council and then the, uh, the conclusion to it, the consensus that they come to at the end. So here's the conflict. The conflict that erupts here is over no small matter in the faith. It's not over something on the side of things. In verse 1 we read this, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So this isn't an ancillary issue that we're talking about right here. We recognize the centrality of circumcision as a question, right? This, this is where the question is at circumcision. But it's not just a question about circumcision, it's a question about salvation. There's a lot on the line when you're talking about this right here. How is a person saved? There are few questions that are more fundamental, at least from a human perspective, than this question of how is a person saved? Calvin writes this, and it helps us to understand the significance of the passage that we're looking at, the weightiness of it. Christianity would have come to nothing if Paul had yielded, at least from a human perspective. That's what Calvin says about this. That's what's on the line here. Christianity comes to nothing if Paul yields in this debate. When I was uh, a student at the University of Maryland at the campus on College Park, there used to be a guy, uh, a street preacher, who would preach uh, not on the street but on the steps in one of the main quads of the campus. And usually anywhere from 50 to 100 people would gather around this guy who was preaching and they would argue with him. So some would, some would support what he was saying, but most people would try and lob uh, 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 grenades, not literally, but lob into it and object to what he was saying and challenge what he was saying. Well, we came to understand, and that's those of us who were believers who inevitably would go up and listen a little bit, that essentially what he was saying was that unless you are baptized as an adult in our church, as an adult in our church, you cannot be saved. It was, in one sense, a similar issue to this one in a modern-day context that we, as believers, young believers walking around the campus, had a sense, wait a minute, that's not right. We, we know that's not right. How do we defend that? How do we explain that that's not right? This conflict is a hot conflict that takes place in the life of the early church. Verse 2 says, they had no small dissension, Paul and Barnabas that is, had no small dissension and debate with them. Now, just as a reminder, by the way, I, and I'm of this opinion, I don't know if Tommy mentioned this in the uh, service last week or not, I'm of the opinion that the letter to the Galatians, which we looked together at last spring, is written just before this. So right there at the end of Acts chapter 14, when Paul has returned to Antioch, is when Paul writes the letter to the Galatians, and it is about essentially this exact same issue. What is the nature of the relationship between circumcision and salvation? Do the Gentiles need to be circumcised for salvation, do they have to keep the law of Moses? If you look down at verse 5, uh, this is what the party of the Pharisees are saying. It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now, another way that you can say this is, do, do the Gentiles 
need to become Jews in order to be saved. I want to suggest this to you, that in this context, that is not an unreasonable question. It may seem to us, well, of course, you don't need to be circumcised to be saved. We might, we might say that rather quickly. That's not a given. It's obviously not a given because of all the discussion that takes place. But it's not even unreasonable because from the very beginnings of circumcision, which while recorded in the law of Moses, which is to say within the Pentateuch, remember is actually long before Moses, it's actually Abraham who was commanded to circumcise, and recorded there is the provision for how a believing Gentile could become a part of the visible covenantal community of Israel by being circumcised. So one can recognize, all right, wait a minute, there was a provision for this in the Old Covenant that sounds exactly like this. You should circumcise them. They should become part of Israel. It is a complex question. It involves questions like, okay, we have this law of God. What parts of the law of God actually apply now to believers? On the one hand, the Jews could ask that question of themselves. What parts of the law apply to us as Jews? What, what, what ought we continue to do or stop doing now that Christ has come? And it applies to Gentiles as well. What part of the law applies to us? And what about the sacraments? How do we understand things that are sacramental in their nature? This circumcision, we don't even address baptism in here at all. But how are we to understand those things? And in addition to that, in this situation in particular, you've got a question that is framed in a way that even the question itself reflects an understanding that is different from God's original intention. I'm sorry to say that. That's, that's a complex way of saying it, but let me try and explain it as simply as I can and, and footnote the class that we did on Galatians. Circumcision never saved anybody. It didn't save anybody in and of itself. It was a sign of the salvation that they had. It was a seal of the salvation that was theirs by faith. But when you say, they have to do this to be saved, circumcised, like we had to do it to be saved, you've even got a misunderstanding that's caught up in the very question that you're asking and the point that you're trying to make. And all I'm trying to say then with this is it really is a tough conflict. There are some really difficult, knotty sides to this thing theologically. A great deal of intensity and a great deal of complexity at exactly the same time. The stakes are high, salvation is at stake, and the other thing that is at stake is the nature of the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. How do these two groups of people get along? How do they relate to one another? Can they relate to one another or not? So that's the conflict, and it leads to the formation of this council. Now remember, as we look at this council, that by this point, and we've seen this both uh, in Acts and we understand it historically, that there have been the development of two main centers of Christianity. On the one hand, you had Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was understandably Jewish in its orientation, primarily. So Jerusalem is here, Antioch is here, and Antioch has become primarily Gentile in its orientation. 
And of course, the, the problem comes up when the folks from Jerusalem come up to Antioch and say, this is what you've got to do. And we're from Jerusalem, by the way, so we're carrying a lot of weight, a lot of authority with us as we tell you, this is what you've got to do. So the church in Antioch, in entering into this conflict, which obviously took place in the first place there, says, okay, we've got to send representatives down to Jerusalem and come to some type of resolution on this issue of circumcision in particular. And so they send uh, Paul and Barnabas along with some of the elders down to Jerusalem to figure this thing out. And as they go, maybe, we, maybe it's important for us to remember this as, as they go, Paul is not confused about this issue. Galatians makes it very clear that he doesn't have any doubt in his mind about what is the truth of the gospel in this situation. So as they go down, we get this idea of them traveling, and as they are traveling through this various, these various areas, they testify to the good news of what God is doing and how the Gentiles have turned to serve the living God. So they're actually stating their case as they move along, and I suppose that coming quickly behind them were the other folks from the circumcision party going, oh, and by the way, you need to be circumcised. You need to be circumcised. And the debate continues and comes together, of course, in Jerusalem where the party of the circumcision or the party of the Pharisees are arguing this exact same thing for circumcision. So they get to Jerusalem. It looks like here by reading the text that, that there's at first this kind of general conversation that's taking place in the city as a whole, people debating this issue. And then the council is called together here. And what we see beginning in verse 6 and then continuing on for the rest of the chapter is a council that is called of the elders and the apostles who together debate these issues. They hear the various sides, the various arguments, and they debate them. And I, I think it's worth pointing out something here that we're at a unique point in church history on a number of levels. Theologically, this is a very important point. Constitutionally, who the people of God are is a very important point. But also, how the church is governed is also very significant. So you're at a transition point here where you still have quite a few of the apostles. Not all of the apostles are alive at this point. Some, or at least one, have been killed according to the record that we've got so far in Acts. But we've got the apostles, so we have a unique authoritative office interacting with the elders of the church. Elders will become normative. Apostles are unique. And even in the last chapter, in chapter 14, we saw Paul and Barnabas go uh, and appoint elders in the various churches where they had served. So one is going to be the continuing office, the elders. The other one is the foundational office, the apostles. But here we see them conferring together. So we see kind of a wise blending of two stages of church leadership uh, that exist. Now, indeed... As we come to the conclusion of this, we're going to hear from Peter and we're going to hear from James. James, though, was not one of the original 12, although James is called an apostle as well. So they do still have an influence. They are significant in the church, but they're trying to make very clear that we apostles alone are not making this decision. It is a decision that is being made amongst apostles and the elders of the church. They speak with one voice. 
with one united voice they come out of this meeting. There is not a letter that comes out of this that is signed by Peter the first or by James the second or by anybody else, but it is signed and addressed deliberately as the apostles and the elders. Both of us together say this, and this idea, and I, again, I just want to point this out, this idea is at the heart of what it means to be Presbyterian, that there are a plurality of elders in any one church, and when they come together, which your session does at least monthly, if not more frequently, we discuss we debate issues that are involved in the life of our local church. And we're part of a presbytery that comes together at least four times a year to debate and consider these issues. We just did it two weeks ago. And part of a general assembly of churches that come together at least yearly to debate and to consider issues like this. So Luke, in reporting this for us, notes that there's a lot of debate. A lot of people were talking, a lot of people were speaking in this, and then he highlights a couple of them in particular. And first of all, he allows and records for us Peter speaking to this. Now, just so you know, this is going to be the last time that Peter speaks in the book of Acts. So Peter has had a, a, an incredibly significant role in the book of Acts, but this is it. This is where it comes to its conclusion for him in terms of at least how Luke records the story. So Peter begins speaking, and he tells the story of Cornelius and his household. It was, what, almost a year ago when we talked about Cornelius and his household from Acts chapter 10 and 11. It may seem that that was a long time ago to us, and our memories are a little bit rusty on that story. But it was actually, and, and this is just sometimes we lose the chronology of things in a, in a uh, letter like this, in a book like Acts. That's 10 years. If, if this council is taking place, let's just say roughly in 50 AD, the conversion of Cornelius was 10 years before this, 40 AD roughly, probably a little bit before that. So Peter is recalling something that actually took place 10 years ago and saying, let me remind you of a story that took place, of something that I witnessed and that we verified when it took place. And he begins to share this with the council. The, 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 and I want to read for us from verse 8. And God, and this is out as he continues his story, and God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, this is Cornelius and his household, remember the Italian cohort, by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. So Peter says, listen, this wasn't just some surfacey thing that was going on with the Gentiles. I didn't misread their hearts. God knows the heart. Okay, that's the emphasis here. God knows exactly what was going on inside of them, and God witnessed to it. God witnessed to it in the way that he did with us. Namely, he sent the Holy Spirit. It is a Pentecost-like event, and that's what we talked about it as. Another Pentecost takes place there to affirm and to confirm exactly what God has done in bringing them into the faith. Verse 9, and he made no distinction, that is, God made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. Here's the importance of what Peter is saying here. Salvation was the same. It was the same. It was the same for us, and it was the same 
for them. And that salvation wasn't circumcision. Peter's not pointing to circumcision as the thing that saved both of them, but instead, verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Here what he says, it's not circumcision. That is not how they were saved, and it's not how we are saved. That's the point, that's the point that he's making. We're saved in the exact same way, Jew and Gentile, by the grace of God, through faith. True for them and true for us. And then in verse 10, you've got what Peter is addressing here particularly. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? A complex little phrase. The law, as the law, as just the will of God declared to the people of God, has never had the ability to save someone. And so Peter is saying, why do you want to put them under the law? It doesn't save. It condemns people. Now, we could broaden that out to see how the old covenant had provision for salvation in the same way that we, by grace through faith. But Peter's point, at least, is to say that the law couldn't do that. It couldn't do it for us, and it can't do it for them either. This law was, in fact, a weighty thing. Rightly understood, properly understood, trying to obey it was not easy. And it became particularly burdensome if you misunderstood the law. If you equated your salvation with obedience to this law, then that's particularly burdensome. And if you, like the Pharisees, to take it one more step, if you sucked love out of the law, then you made this law even more burdensome. And so there's realities here. The law could never save. There's misunderstandings and there's misapplications that are being addressed by Peter here as he makes these statements. Salvation is the same for both of us. That's Peter's point as he records this. And, and a silence ensues. That's a heavy statement made by Peter, and people get the silence. And then Paul and Barnabas relate what has taken place with them. Unusually for Luke, we don't get to hear from Paul at all. We get no words from Paul and Barnabas recorded for us except that they told their story. The reason for that is we just read it. Acts 11, or excuse me, Acts 12 and 13 and 14 describe these things that are going on with Paul and with Barnabas, the kind of things that they had experienced, and Paul's voice will be throughout the rest of Acts. So here we relate and get related to us the fact that it took place, but we get no specifics about what they did because we've read it earlier. And then James speaks. Now, one of the James had been, James the original apostle, had been killed earlier in Acts, and now James, the brother of Jesus, considered to be an apostle, is a committed Jew, and in fact, some of the people who had gone up into Galatia had claimed that they had been sent by James, or that they at least were representing what James had to say in insisting on the circumcision and the necessity of circumcision for the people. So if you want to look at that, you can go to Galatians chapter 2 later and see how they claim to be of James. There, there's a connection that is assumed there. James thus had the credentials 
of a good, solid spokesperson for things Jewish, for things related to the law, and for circumcision. Now, when you're in one of these situations, so if you're in a, a presbytery, for example, and an issue comes to the floor and the presbytery is debating the issue, then the moderator will often say, okay, is there a speaker for the motion? And then when that person speaks, they'll say, is there a person speaking against the motion? And the moderator will do as much as possible to alternate between the voices. So you can imagine that as James kind of clears his throat and stands up to speak, the party of the circumcision, they feel pretty good. They feel like, okay, this is our guy. And that's what happens. I mean, there, there are people who represent various points, and when they stand up, you think, this is it. This is, this is going to seal the deal. Peter said this, but wait till James speaks on the issue. And so he gets up to speak, and he begins by relating what Simeon had said. Simeon is a nice little twist. He doesn't call him Peter. Uh, Simon would be his Hebrew name. And to say it in Greek, you would say Simeon. So all of a sudden, we've got this nice little twist by James right in the way that he calls him Simeon. He goes, I'm going to call him by his Jewish name with a Greek twist on that Jewish name just to indicate the direction that I'm heading. And then this next section reads very quickly to us. Uh, we, can, we can get through it. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. That's one verse very quickly. And almost every single word is a loaded word in it. When James says God has visited the Gentiles, visiting can be one of two things. It is either visiting in judgment or it is visiting in blessing. And clearly here, James means it visiting in blessing. So the word that is used here, visited, is the same word that describes how God visited the people in Exodus and the same word that describes the way Jesus visited Israel, the way Messiah has come to Israel. So God has visited the Gentiles as well, the purpose of which was to take, take or to choose from the Gentiles a people for his name. Hard for us, perhaps, to hear that language applied in this situation. Because that language, God choosing, God taking a people for his name from amongst the nations, that's the constitutional language of Israel. Okay, this is what God did, Exodus chapter 19, in choosing Israel from among the nations. He chose that people from among the nations to bear his name, to be his people, to be his treasured possession. And now James says, what Peter is relating is how that has now changed. Instead of God choosing a nation from among the nations, God is choosing people from among all of the nations. And they are going to be this people as a whole, a people to bear his name, a treasured possession, his people. And so, again, we, we read a statement like that very quickly, but what James is saying is loaded with importance in almost every single phrase of it. Then what he goes on to say, and I, I'm, I'm being brief here at this point because I've preached a sermon specifically on uh, this, these words from James a few years back, so I'm being brief here. But what James wants to say is God choosing a people from all of the nations 
a multi-ethnic, multinational people, multiracial people. That's no plan B. That's no novelty in the plan of God. Instead, it is exactly the purpose that God has always had, and it is foretold in the prophets, and he chooses one of any number of places that he could have chosen to make the point. And this quotation that he has comes from Amos chapter 9. It's beyond us to go through every detail of this, but the point that he's making is this. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. What he says is, I am going to reestablish the Davidic kingdom. I am going to set a king on the throne of David, and I'm going to rebuild, restore, reestablish my people. And what, what, what Amos is saying and what James understands about this is now great David's greater son as we sang and prayed earlier, has, through suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension, been seated on the throne of David. This has taken place. The restoration of the fallen tent, booth, house of David has now taken place with Jesus being ascended to the right hand of the Father, sitting on the throne of David, ruling over the nations. And... And the rebuilding that is promised here, I will rebuild its ruins, I will restore it. The rebuilding doesn't apply to physical stones in Jerusalem. Instead, the rebuilding takes place as Jew and Gentile are constituted living stones and mortared together in the rebuilding of the household of God. point. God isn't making Israel bigger. If God was just increasing Israel, then yes, everybody has to become Jewish. God isn't making Israel bigger. Instead, he is making the idea of his people, my people, bigger. So it is the people from every tongue and tribe and nation. And so, Since God is not making Israel bigger, since God is reconstituting what it means to be my people, don't trouble them. They don't need to become Jewish because they, like we, are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, who is the king, great David's greater son. Now, I think if we're in that setting and James makes this speech and, and the camera panned over to Paul right now and we got the shot of what's Paul doing as James is finishing that speech, Paul's weeping. And he's probably going, that's what I've been saying. <laughs> that's what I've been saying. And, James, they're children of Abraham. They're children of God and they're children of Abraham because they are children of faith just like their father, Abraham. And they all come to one accord that this is, in fact, the truth. And this brings us to the conclusion, the consensus of it. Write a letter and send it out with representatives with full authority. And let me pick it up in verse 24. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. People were troubled. 
their minds were unsettled. And actually, if I can borrow from our previous sermon series or two back now, it's, it's actually psyche, their souls. Their souls were troubled. Their souls were upset because somebody was redefining and messing with the idea of salvation. Somebody was saying to them, you had to do something to be saved. You have to be circumcised in order to be saved. And that troubled them down deep in their souls. The gospel is a balm to the soul. It is the good news of the gospel of grace. And when you lose it, just like when the Galatians lose it, it's troubling. Remember that Paul says to the Galatians, where's all that sense of blessing that you had? Where's all that joy that you had? Because he gets it. The gospel had created joy in them, and the law had taken it away from them, or at least the misunderstanding of the law had taken it back away from them. Now, there's one remaining question for us. How do you make sense of the portion of the conclusion regarding the meat that is sacrificed to idols, the blood, the strangulation that is referred to, and the sexual immorality. Why those four things? How did they come out? They seem to just drop right out of the blue, like, whoa, how do we get, how do we get a list like this? And I think the best way to understand this list is one, it's not random. It's not just a random collection of things. Two, it is not based on Old Testament law. Uh, it has some parallels, but it's not based on Old Testament law. And three, it is not just a list that is designed to show respect for the Jews, although it does, and I'll come back to that in just a moment. Instead, these activities that are listed here for us are ones that are specifically related to practices at pagan temples. These are things that went on at pagan temples. And so it was a stumbling block for everybody. And, and as Paul's going to write two more letters right after this, not more than two, but the two that follow this are 1 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians. And both of them deal with these exact same issues, urging people to turn from the, uh, from the idolatry. And remember that we just saw Paul in chapter 14 with the Lycaonians say to them, turn from these, turn from this vanity of serving these idols and turn to the living God. So these are big issues for Gentiles that are associated with these pagan temples, these pagan cults. Thompson, Alan Thompson writes this about it. He says, in other words, the decision in the letter is you don't have to become Jews, but you can't remain pagan, idolatrous, Gentiles. Now, the reality is that's going to go a long way in also helping a relationship with the Jews. Because what the Jews see in the way that the Gentiles behave is idolatry. It looks idolatrous to them. And so the Jews are saying you've got to be circumcised. But now that we're recognizing these things that are neither good for Gentiles nor good for Jews... There's going to be a better understanding between Jews and Gentiles, an easier ability for them to live together. So this is a concern. How do these two groups get along with one another? And in one of the most fantastic juxtapositions in uh, the book of Acts, so we've got this whole thing, you don't need to be circumcised, and in about eight verses, although it's going to take us two weeks to get there, Paul's going to have Timothy circumcised. 
So Paul's going to have a guy circumcised. We're going to have to deal with that. He's very conscious about the relationship between Jews and Gentiles and how we can make this as best as possible. So that is definitely part of what's going on here. And the summary is that when this goes out, when this letter goes out, you might hear that letter and think, okay, that doesn't seem like it would necessarily provoke the kind of reaction that we see in the people who receive this letter. But when the people read this letter, they rejoice and they are encouraged by the words that they find in this letter. I hope uh, that you, like me, are thankful to be Presbyterian. I am thankful for this passage for us being a model uh, of conflict resolution, and I think we can learn from it as it is presented to us here. I consider it a privilege to serve the church as an elder in the church with other elders and wrestle through issues. And out of a presbytery meeting from two weeks ago, at which there was much discord about a particular issue, I'll sit down on Thursday with four other pastors in the area trying to hammer out something over which we had discord. And I am thankful for your love of truth. You are people who love to contend for that which is true and that which is right, whether you're on a college campus in a small group or we're sitting around a fire on a patio. But that all said, for me and for you, the main message of Acts chapter 15 is in the words of John Stott that this is a victory for truth in confirming the gospel of grace. That's what takes place here and nothing less than that takes place here. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but faith working through love. And so it is resolved here. God saves by grace through faith in Jesus Christ as that is applied to us by the Holy Spirit. So people of God, let not your souls be troubled. Let not your souls be troubled. Rest in the good news of the gospel of of grace and be encouraged.